I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to a special episode of the Voice of Insurance podcast. Today's episode is a real treat because we're doing something that we rarely do in real life. That something is to undertake a genuine appraisal of what has gone well and what hasn't in a business in the time since we last spoke. I often interview tech-focused entrepreneurs who have visions of how to transform the industry for the better. But what I almost never do is get them back on the show to examine in detail how their ideas fared when they came in direct contact with the often harsh reality of the industry as it is today. But I suppose James York, the founder and CEO of Peace, is not like other insurance entrepreneurs. In fact, I've never met anyone quite like James. Two years ago, he was on the show espousing insurance reviews as a way of achieving a new type of consumer insurance platform, sitting somewhere between search and price comparison. Now he's back on the show to report in graphic detail how that experience went and how he's adapted to the realities of the marketplace. It's honest, sometimes brutally so. In tech, everyone's always going on and on about how it's so important to nurture the ability to fail fast and iterate. Except almost no one will admit to having done so. Just because your idea is right, it doesn't mean that it will be accepted with open arms. But James is a robust enough character to take setbacks on the chin and refocus. His latest idea on how to advance his vision is spectacularly simple and incredibly useful, and his enthusiasm and energy is completely undiminished. This is an incredibly valuable conversation because it's born from hard experience. It's also one that anyone interacting with the insurtech world will easily relate to and learn a huge amount from. I can highly recommend a detailed listen. Enjoy the podcast. James, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks for having me back, Mark. It was over two years ago. A lot's changed. When you came on the show, your business was called Worry and Peace. I've noticed that you've dropped the worry, and now the peace has got slightly more C's in it as well. So why don't you, first of all, run us through that, and then I think you should also remind us what Worry and Peace was and what peace is now and what's changed. Yeah, that's a good point. So let's start with the platform, the vision. It's quite simple. Between search and comparison sites, that particularly the retail and non-advised sectors, don't really have a place where everything insurance is resident. And from a consumer perspective, they're buying insurance from lots of different places. They're siloed. They don't really have one point of truth to look, review for, store, manage, share their insurance. And that's what we're trying to build. And we're doing it from a perspective of not being part of the selling. So if you don't sell insurance, then you can connect everything because you're outside that kind of circle of mistrust, so to speak. The last time we spoke, your main point of attack and your way of populating that platform was reviews. And if someone knew anything about your business, specialist insurance reviews would be the thing they would use as your first way of describing your business. How's that gone? Because it's been a couple of years. How's it gone? Has that worked? And has the industry responded to that? Um, If not, have you iterated? I guess the honest answer would be, ouch, it's been a bumpy ride. There's been lots of successes from looking at feedback and reviews. And I'll go through a few case studies. Let's go to the renaming as well, by the way, from Worry and Peace to Peace. Those that followed me back would know that I actually used to sell insurance and I had quite a few brands. And the underpinning brand was powered by Worry and Peace. When I made it a tech brand where it wasn't regulated, I took that brand name with me of Worry and Peace. 
But of course, what it took with it was the legacy of, didn't you used to do this with it and sell insurance? So the vision of building this sort of third place between search and comparison was always a little bit jeopardized by, didn't you used to sell insurance? So we rebranded, gave it a bit of a fresh lick of paint. Oh, it looks really cool. It's cooler, isn't it? It's right? got three Cs and sort of the idea of it being, yes, peace of mind, I suppose. And the three Cs also stand for something. Yeah, they, they do and they can, right? They can stand for claims, cover and cost in insurance if you want them to. The reality is that I needed something that was near peace and peace.com is obviously taken for some sort of charitable humanitarian exercise. So there's a record in tech of making heinous spelling mistakes. I think dribble was the one I was inspired by. It's got like seven Bs. Resist the temptation to put an exclamation mark that shouldn't have been in there. I did. Or go or something before that. Go peace. But going back to reviews, what have been the pluses? Well, the pluses have been that we've aggregated and classified over 1.2 million bits of feedback now. So we've crawled all the reviews websites for all of the providers we can find, which is over 1,500. And we've run those through natural language processes to basically find out which are the needles in the haystack, the claims reviews. So we can now classify for pretty much any UK retail provider the proportion of reviews for that bit after purchase. You know, when you've checked out and it's all been very easy and fluffy, the support line where you've phoned up after you've purchased it and had a, a good or a bad experience. And then, of course, where the cookie properly gets crumbled, the claims experiences. So anyone could go on Peace now and directly search for Aviva or Admiral and look at those ratios and then look at the breakdowns of those ratios and the proportions. So it gives course, a lot more context. That was your USP and has been your USP. But of course, you can look at something that's 4.6 out of 5 on one of the main review sites, but it doesn't actually tell you very much. It says, yeah, that... 90% of people who are happy got some cheap car insurance. And then, of course, there's 1% of people who actually had a claim and then couldn't have no one to talk to and felt abandoned and quite badly treated. And that might aggregate to something that looks like 4.6, but doesn't really give you any meaningful information about that insurance company. And of course, yours is split up into the three. It was, yeah. And you hit the nail on the head there. Insurance is a unique product where it has a tailwind before it's actually ever really used. So there's a lag, a long tail to it. And that allows people with poor delivery to hide in plain sight behind reviews that they're asking at a stage where there's much more people to influence the average score. You know, if you've got 100 clients and one is claiming, then their one-star experience is never going to rise above the 99 that found it quite easy to buy, thanks very much, and never claimed and used. So that led us to realising that there was probably an issue with reviews and insurance, and maybe we should create our own kind of native technology. And here's where our bumps and scrapes began to arise. Firstly, the case studies we'd agreed were negotiated just sort of at the back end of COVID, sort of in the middle of it. So COVID definitely was a factor. Had a huge impact because one of them in particular was a fantastic arrangement where we were about a quarter of a million reviews piping through our system at a different spot in the conversion funnel. So our zone that we're interested in, if everyone out there visualizes a big ice cream funnel, Trustpilot gets the stuff right at the bottom if you bit the bottom off it. Sort of what drips out the bottom is the amount of Trustpilot reviews in the system. And all the ice cream on the top is all the quotes and all the leads and feedback and window shopping. We're interested in why they don't drip through. So we'd like to ask all of the mass of people that come and get a quote from a conversion checkout, what was the problem? How much did they miss by? Who else did you go to? And that obviously requires the providers to buy in and to send us those details in order that we may independently invite them. And that was the way you were going to populate your platform. Exactly. It's free traffic, right? If we're being candid. Almost giving this service for free in return for getting those 250,000 bits of traffic, failed quotes or whatever, and then you were going to be investigating why they were not taken up, that kind of thing. Exactly. A good example would be the contributed data model that LexisNexis have. 
you know, people give them data for free in exchange for the aggregated overall view and the derivative benefits of using that when it comes back to you. But the long and short of it is whether it was COVID changed things, we were trying to create a new place for feedback to happen where it didn't already. We faced quite a lot of inertia right up to outright hostility towards the attitude of almost I didn't sell to these people, so why should I give them to you? That was really disappointing because, of course, what you don't know is what hurts you in life and in business. And there's a lot of cost to that funnel. You know, that ice cream, as I personified it, Mark, costs thousands of pounds. It's almost as if they're telling you they own a customer, but it's literally someone they don't own because they're not a customer and they couldn't possibly own that customer because they're one of the 96% of people who they quote to who never take anything up. Yeah. And you've hit on something slightly different there as well. There's a nuance to that kind of territorialness of if I can't have them, no one can. It's that tribalism. If it's car insurance, we know it's compulsory, so they must go somewhere. Yeah. I mean, look, think about it on a basic lifetime value basis. You as a person looking for insurance, if you're in a certain target market, you're going to be buying four or five types of insurance and you're very unlikely to buy them all from one place. Now, when you go looking for those, you're worth money to someone that's advertising the people that sell them to you. And per year, that could be, call it 50 to 100 pounds of click value. The person that's selling you just one of those has to pay their respective clicks to acquire you. And per 100 clicks they buy, they convert a certain percentage. Some websites are rumored to only convert 2% of traffic, which is a huge amount of traffic to have to pay for to have very little coming out at the end. So once you've paid for someone and qualified them, you've got your price in front of them, they've tried the jeans on, to not then follow up when they don't purchase that product and say, why, is actually against the flow of the latest FCA regulations of consumer duty. Because if you don't know why they're not buying from you, then how can you correct and move the ship? Well, it's just good business, isn't it? It's just basic business sense, isn't it, surely? It does. But look, that's bitterness speaking on my part. It would have been free traffic for me on a contributed data model, of course. It means I don't have to go out and spend my investors' money on marketing and and lots of above-the-line activity. It's arbitrage, right? And I then get some of that lifetime value from all those click values that are presently going to what we call in the tech trade, the fangs, right? Google, Facebook, Apple. And that seems reasonable to me, but it butts into, you're a little player, you haven't got millions of pounds of funding like we do. If I can't have them, no one can. And I own the customer, even though, even if they did sell you a car insurance policy, you're buying your insurance from elsewhere. So we butted up against an industry culture and a mentality, which was, as I said, on the spectrum of can't do this, would love to, through to outright hostility of wouldn't do it anyway, who cares? Did that surprise you? Because it was the answer to a question that you didn't know the answer to until you tried. And you tried, and then you came up against a bit of a brick wall. Yes. It's frustrating in two ways. It's frustrating because you don't get to test the hypothesis, which is if I get loads of free traffic and ask them this question, how many will pop in and stick around and be part of this new third way, which is the the mission of the business. So you can't test the hypothesis. So you're sort of proven wrong without ever really getting the data. Was I disappointed in terms of the sector's attitude towards feedback? undeniably, but that was probably naive of me because look, this is a business and everyone's focused on that conversion funnel and their COR. You know, the woolly fluffy bits of how people feel probably to them came across as equally naive and silly and and not making good business sense. But if it's unaccrued loss, it's money on the table that you don't really feel, then I guess I can relate to it strategically because you've got bigger fish to fry. Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. 
If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. It's interesting that they've sort of almost got their fingers in their ears, not wanting to engage. And because, of course, the mission is if they could double their conversion rate, that would be fantastic for their business without having to spend any extra on the marketing side. Fantastic for the expense ratio. Well, Mark, it's simpler than that. If you're buying car insurance clicks and that person needs life insurance, those clicks are sometimes the same, if not more, than the click that you paid for. So there's a basic arbitrage piece to that. And of course, the magical retargeting. You can be retargeted to someone. If I know you know someone, but you didn't hate them, or your review wasn't one, two, or three, arguably, then when you search for another product, I might be able to tailor the search results to factor in what I know about you and the relationship with who we know you know. So ultimately, I tried to play the on the market style game where it was look, the PCWs and Google, they're the kind of zoopler in the room here, distorting things. Let's rally together and join up. It didn't resonate for a mixture of reasons. And I, I maintain. The thing people are thinking about when you pitch what you want them to think about is critical to any sale. And I know now in hindsight, and we'll talk about this throughout the next product that we've created to get to market, which was always there and in the plan, but we didn't want to have to pay to get to market. Hitting someone with the product's use case with what's on their mind at the time is critical. And we didn't do that very well. I'd openly admit that. So to all those people out there listening, thinking, yeah, I don't know James pitched reviews to my team or whatever else. We were existing in a realm where Trustpilot was being used, as I said, at the end of the funnel. You've already paid for the integration. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. We get all the risks to it. But at the same time, I do lament the fact that I didn't trigger the quote funnel, the retrieval, all that kind of process that people are thinking about day in, day out with the feedback and how it can add value to that. That's a bit cryptic of me, but I'll be back no, basically for reviews. And obviously, if any listeners not in the UK, Zoopla and On The Market, they're all very successful property websites. Aggregators. Aggregators, yeah. So you were trying to play that game. Why didn't you go back to investors and say, well, isn't going to work trying to do these things for free on this kind of let's share this data to get something better together model? I'm going to have to go and buy these customers off these people. Why didn't you then go and do that? It's a good question. Fear, perhaps, that we would waste the capital with something that's already being done. You know, there's already a layer. I mean, the comparison sites themselves are a lead generation layer, aren't they? They're going out and they're buying eyeballs yeah, and then they're reselling them for arguably distortive terms. So does the market really need one of those? And equally, if you did play that game, could you compete? And I decided that for the capital, we would have been able to muster a war chest. It wasn't a good use of shareholders funds. So I had other routes. I felt that we could use what we built to our advantage. And as I said, I go back to that original mission of being a platform that does everything insurance, but doesn't sell it. That actually gives you an ability to do peace of mind, risk management-y things that can bring someone in for less than that cost of the click when they're looking for insurance at that moment in the year. And of course, to remind everyone, that is the sort of vision, I mean, probably in the last podcast, you described this as being almost like the Amazon of insurance, that this is somewhere where you could go and have all your insurance in one place. You know where it all is. You've got your cover notes, you've got everything. You can see where it all is. You see where the renewals are coming up. Maybe you're getting pitched on your renewal, uh, some nice competitive terms already popping up. You don't have to go and do too much. That's the end game vision, isn't it? That's the journey, the destination. But let's be really clear, you can't start putting any kind of pricing or quoting model in there, whether it's regulated or unregulated, yeah. without having what we call ignition, which means the fire's lit. You could put some more log on that. You know, hundreds of thousands of people in there, right? Exactly. So plan A didn't work very well. Plan A's on hiatus. Yeah. So you iterated, you know, you're a real entrepreneur, you're always thinking of new ideas. 
So you had this other idea in your back pocket. Tell us all about that. Yeah. So obviously what sort of sits at the centre of peace is this wallet for insurance. Now, the venture capital community don't like the wallet for insurance model because it's always previously been tied to selling. I, I know what's in your wallet. Now go to this thing. And that's how I make my money. Well, our wallet didn't really want to ever work like that. But what it does do is consider how once you've got cover or a thing, how can we help protect that and who else needs to know about it? So a really good example would be you might, in your media empire one day, Mark, employ 50, 60 people and need to have employers' liability. How do you get it to them? And when you're running an establishment, we can all shut our eyes and visualise those browning pieces of paper on the wall, the certificates. You know? Yeah, in the kitchen or something, wasn't <laughs> yes. it? Or just behind the entrance or behind the receptionist's desk, as is your framed browning certificate. from of, 2002. Uh, you yes, know? usually and out some of poor, Yeah, <laughs> some poor schmuck's got to change it. Now, you know, anyone out there listening, go to your local supermarket or hypermarket, if you're, wherever you are in the world, and go and look for that. I mean, Sainsbury's is a really funny one. They're in those plastic kind of paper slider things. And it's just notice. a printed piece of paper. And when you think about how much money their public liability insurance costs them, for it to be just slid in a little thing that's by the customer service till, says, it should know, make you laugh. My cat is missing. Yeah. And we wonder why people don't value insurance when we give them a bit of paper to put in a plastic presentation thing. So with the whole COVID era creating QRs, you've got this ability to start to distribute the sharing of insurance. And what we've done now is the first of this wave of new distributed routes to sharing insurance and peace of mind is called Car QR. It doesn't do anything insurance at the moment. It's about risk management. It's a smart windscreen sticker to replace that note under the wiper. When someone's dinged your car or witnessed damage to it, those rare occasions, just like insurance, where someone needs to tell you about your car and they can't, we've created a QR interface with a chat app and you build the page on so the piece. So it's where your tax disk used to be. Exactly. So I've seen that you've got a flat tire or, or there's someone's done something or someone's bumped it or maybe I've just dinged your car in a supermarket car park classic thing. And you want to fess up. And I'm yeah, I'm a good guy. I'm gonna scan that QR and they'll go to you your page or something. Yeah, your car has a page with a, like a nickname. And then yeah. obviously it'll say, Oh right, it's a registration number and it's a you know, red Rolls Royce or whatever that you're driving around in James. And yes, then I'll just be able to contact you securely through that effectively. I'll say, sorry, I bashed my thing. Look, here's my insurance details. This is my phone number. My name's Mark. I'm really sorry. Call me later. I've done this. It's even simpler than that because you have to acknowledge that social media has created lots of bad outcomes for some of its software. You've got to know what's going to happen. How will people misuse this? So for the ability to you to talk to a car owner, you've got to think like the, the worst person might think. So we preset the messages. So you pick from a message. So like, I have damaged your car or I have witnessed damage to your car. And then the recipient owner gets a text message. They can open up a live chat and they can choose to communicate back to you. They have safety features. Our new update has got a lot, actually, because we had lots of feedback from females that had tested the product about its misuse, potentially. I suppose because I could be a bit of a sort of stalker or something and then say, oh, I quite like the lady down the road who gets into my sports car and I'm going to now... QR her all the time. You might stalk her anyway, mightn't you? Let's be awful about it. You might leave a note under her windscreen anyway and try and speak to her. But what you probably won't realise is that our technology is ultimately a bear trap for you because we start to get evidentiary trail for misuse. And as long as we've got good tools to allow said vulnerable customer to feel safe and protected with this asset, they get the benefit of being informed or helped by a good Samaritan with the downsides being mitigated. So we have a safety number coming up, the sort of equivalent of a panic button. So if you go back to your car, you can set this alarm that you have to press. And if you don't press it, then your safety number gets contacted. So we've tried to think of lots of ways where misuse could be countered. But ultimately, humans are humans and 
every good idea gets somewhat corrupted by the people. So that's our job is to monitor. And is that a consumer product? Is that something that you want people to pay for? And will people pay for it? Well, they are, which is great. I think in, in reality, we need to get stocked in places like Halfords and on the marketplaces, which require you to have a bit of reviews. And could it be bill. given out as a freebie in car insurance, do you think? Yes, um, With your renewal, you know, and say, right, thanks, Mr. Gagan. Here's your car QR. It's a really novel little thing. You just stick it in your windscreen. And then if anyone dings your car, they can contact you. Absolutely. You can imagine when you launch a new retail product, you have to think of it as if, if this was a chocolate bar or a can of Red Bull, what would they do to market it? You give away free samples. Absolutely. And, and a lot. That unit cost, from my perspective, is still less than I would have to have paid to get someone who was searching for car insurance to come to Peace oh, so, so it doesn't really matter if it cost me a couple of quid to get someone to take it and register it. I'm still up in my ledger in my brain in terms of their lifetime value to insurance. So we can see what the consumer gets out of it. A very useful sort of product. You think, why hasn't anyone thought of this before? And I suppose it's really only the pandemic. QRs have been around for quite a long time, but they only really got properly used during the pandemic. Everyone suddenly saw that there was a really good reason There's to start. There's now, isn't there? Really be able to check into a restaurant and do all these things that you were able to do during COVID and prove you've been vaccinated and all that stuff. So what do you get out of it? So effectively, you create a web page or a sort of web identity for this person. Presumably you get their name and address and, and everything else, and obviously car, registration number and other things with their consent. And that is a way of populating your insurance platform. Absolutely. Once you've got Mark registering his Rolls Royce, as you mentioned, onto the platform. You can then say, well, Mark, do you want to add your car insurance to that? And then you can pass the PDF, which is easily done. Adobe have a great API for that. It's costly, but you can do it. And then you could have Mark easily be able to make a claim, first notification of loss through the system. So you can start to augment the peace of mind that the sticker offers. And if you take it, the technology itself... Because you could, I could then go and populate and say, I get the sticker and then I go, oh, why don't I add I my insurance I start adding my insurance in. I start sharing it with my spouse. And then you can help notify this thing for me. Exactly. And then once you've got two people on the same platform using the technology, that's when it really starts to be interesting. But that's down the line, right? As we talked about Ignition, we're a long way from that. But the use cases for the technology are really interesting because an app that does something risk management-like or sharing insurance-like that's hidden behind a distributed QR sticker can be done in lots of walks of life. It can replace that thing in the Pacino's coffee shop on your local train station platform that's showing their PL insurance or the allergens for the product recall. It can be used in any shape or form, you know, on a tin of dog food for the customer support and the product recall. There's tons of use cases for QR app platform that creates them. And we love that. So expect more to come. There'll probably be a commercial one for companies and one for sharing insurance and one for something much more mobile. That's really interesting. So what should we expect from you this year? Well, we'll have another go at addressing the reviews conundrum, because as I said, it still stands that the way that star ratings operate for insurance doesn't work. And there's a bunch of wasted chaff on the milling floor that I think we can turn into fertilizer. So we're going to go probably deeper into that and maybe look at quote retrieval and our wallets as an option. And that ties neatly in actually to what we're doing with our car QR. There's an application on both of the mobile phones that we're looking at quite heavily to avoid us having to have our own apps. I don't think insurance needs to have an app. You know, you don't need an Admiral or a Direct Line app or a Hiscox app. It's duplication because you're only buying this thing once a year. What you need is instant distributed access. So the direction of travel this year will be get car QR out there, get it stocked, sell a few try and engage with the industry, see if anyone wants to brand them up themselves and give them away at their Bieber stands or as part of their own marketing and incentives, add the technology to more walks of sharing insurance or sharing risk, 
and then launch our effort to go back to... So you can definitely partner with you. If, if a large insurance company came and said, look, I've got 2 million customers, I want to give them all a QR and the next renewal, you'd say, yes, please. And they would also get something out of it, wouldn't they? They would. I personally think if we're talking about direct car and home, a lot of them I know are thinking about how they can diversify their reliance on PCWs, which is often 80% plus of their business. Just explain PCW? Price comparison website. Yes, sorry, you said that earlier. As you know, my mission to unpick all three letter abbreviations. All acronyms should be shocked, shouldn't they? But the comparison sites form an excellent part of our distribution chain. You can't deny it. They've done some great things. And to compete with them has taken a few people down. Lots of people have tried and failed. But undeniably, if you're relying on them as your main distribution source and something further distorts that model that has extra costs for you, yeah, that's got to be a strategic issue for any company. And going direct is expensive. So go back to the tools I've created. If you had a basket that could catch all the waste and all the extra cost from that that you weren't turning into instant value and you could recycle it, then CarQR, of course, forms part of that toolkit that Peace offers. It's got to be something that you'd hope would improve renewal rates. I'd hope so. I mean, there's things you can add into it as well. You can do add-ons inside it. Obviously, the ethanol is something I'm particularly excited about. I'm talking to a few other insurtechs about that at the moment. At the moment, though, in terms of pitching to the sector, I think we'll take a bit of a step back from that over the next couple of quarters because of how burnt we got going up there every time and saying, hey, we've got this great idea with reviews. Do you see the world the way we see it? The customer's in the middle and you're just a part of it. You're not in a corridor with them. And getting told time and again, yeah, we like that, but no, I don't think I'll be overly pitching car QR to the sector. I think I'm going to go away, build a great early adopting community of this because the feedback for it is fantastic. And then when the sector's ready to kind of look at the tools I'm building, they'll be there for them. And open arms pretty much from my side, but a little bit battle shy to go and pitch something because it was turning into a SaaS sales cycle when really I guess I was probably selling more of a methodology for how you engage with your customer. And SaaS is software as a service. Software as a service, exactly, which notoriously any big company buying from you, it's a long deal flow, right? So that was the issues we bumped into. And as an early stage startup with limited capital, time's your enemy because every day you're burning staff costs. And if you don't get traction, you've got no income. And with the car QR, you're getting income, you're getting traction. And again, but with that, it's a direct to consumer kind of model at the moment, unless you're getting it bundled in with an insurance company or with somebody. So isn't that quite capital intensive though? It will be slightly more. And that's, I guess, being brutal as you look at this year. I mean, everyone out there should know that we're in a venture bear market. Valuations are down. There's less funding for later stage, but early stage companies are still holding up. And our total capital raised is still quite a lot less than other people out there that have probably crashed and burned at later stage and spent more. So I'm happy to view this as, look, if I have to pay for a bit of growth here, at least it's proving concepts and getting people through. But there's a great prospect here of making a a really healthy margin on these products. So we'd expect you to be out fundraising? I don't think so. I think we'll probably work with our existing angels and maybe look to work with that network, first and second degree contacts there. I don't think the venture world has ever really seen the destination of where I'm going. To be honest with you, and this is not meant in a bitter way at all, I don't think they think you can compete with the comparison sites in the UK. There's almost an awe. It's like someone saying they're going to compete with Google. Like When it comes to insurance distribution, anyone that says, I'm going to disrupt comparison and I don't need as much money as they've got, it's not believed and therefore it's not backed. But the odd thing about it is that the return versus the bet, if you've got the right tactics, is enormous. Because if you look at the exits for comparison sites, all of them have exited for huge sums, as you know. And even the one that Google bought, beat that quote, was a 50 million exit over a decade ago. 
certainly we're very well served in the UK. We've been very lucky. We have, of course, we had the direct insurance boom of the late 80s, early 90s, and where everybody had a direct arm. There were probably 30 different direct arms. They must have burnt a huge amount of money, of course, when only probably the little red telephone actually came through all of those wars. And then, yeah, price comparison really kicked off with the internet. And again, we're quite lucky that we seem to have been in the UK. We're probably 10 years ahead of a lot of other countries on this. And yet our brokers still survive, right? I think everything sort of comes full circle eventually with technology. Yeah. The most successful insurtech on the continent is WeFox. And actually a lot of the successful insurtechs yeah, in the UK- really allowing brokers to do business better, basically. Exactly. And broker class, I don't think is going anywhere. And if anything, innovating how you give advice and how that's paid for and decoupling that from the premium would be a really good thing to do. Let's say in my world, I see in a couple of years, a person goes out there and gets themselves a business insurance quote. And then they add on top of that a separate advisor to recommend which one they should pick. And then they pay that advisor over the preceding 12 months. You know, that would be a nice model and we could match make that. That's where we could get to. I'm revealing that now because it's no great secret. I've talked to about a lot of people, but when you've got a platform, you can do different things, which connects people together as Amazon did. But people are very fixated on how comparison do that as opposed to how it could be done when you consider open finance and GDPR and consumer duty. I see it differently. And that's okay. Sometimes you speak a different language to the rest of the market. It's your job, isn't it? As someone pitching your way to be understood better. And that was last year's learning experience for sure. It's you go in there really enthusiastic, thinking that what you've got is the answer. And it's not the question they're it's asking. It's not the question they're asking. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you survive, right? And that's the art of early stages. You don't go to market with that, hey, I want your free traffic and this is all going to work out great without having a reserve parachute. And that's what CarQR represented for and us. It's not all um, cigars and champagne, obviously. No, and fancy offices. Which is, I don't even which, have a gilet. So yeah. I'm, I'm technically a tech founder. <laughs> um, one thing on the CarQR, there's no real moat around that business. It's, not very, it's quite a low barrier to entry, isn't it? I mean, anyone could have thought of this idea, right? And anyone could, once they see it, they could copy it. Well, there are barriers for sure. You've got to have the right manufacturing process, how you package it. The technology behind pairing a QR code to a yet-to-be-created page is the IP. That's the R&D piece of it. And once you've done that, you can do that for pretty much anything. If I wanted to, I could pivot the entire business into being almost like a QR platform foundry, but it's not very sexy. But no, there are barriers. And we've also built our own chat interface. So in theory, someone could scan here to claim that you've slipped over on this spot and we could drop someone into a branded chat channel for someone else at the moment. That, that technology would all be out of the box for us. So quite a lot of barriers in the application, but getting a QR code to link to somewhere else is easy as pie. In fact, most people's cloud servers will do it for free. James, I think we've run through all the topics that we were going to talk about. Unless there's anything you want to add. I guess probably one out there for all the innovators that have seen the first wave of InsureTech Mark. And, you know, there are a lot of cynics that probably look at these startups that say they can change an industry. And there's obviously going to be a little bit of schadenfreude as the bear market kind of hits and some of these valuations don't live up to all the hype. But early stage is really standing up very well. And one of the things I've been really keen to make sure prospers is that people keep an open mind because a lot of the founders that are onto things were right. What they met were cultural problems in the sector. How do they ingest and work with new ideas that are outside of the way that their management structures operate fundamentally? So of course, there'll be people that maybe didn't deserve their funding and got it and have crashed and burned because they were just bad at what they were doing. But for every one of those, there's probably another one that is really worth listening to. And in insurance, I still think buy while others sell. And at the moment, the bear market in insurance is dropping valuations. It's leading to a bit of distress. 
great time to look at it in my view, because the people that survive this stage, they've really got something or they've really got the right material. Certainly I would agree with you. There are plenty of insurtech businesses that are absolutely great and plenty of ones that don't really have that much of a high profile either, but they're doing great stuff all the time and some of it's quite boring, but it's not boring for the people who are buying those services because they're knocking points off their expense ratio, for example, or they're knocking points off the loss ratio. I would say the best insurtech businesses have been ones that have been serving the existing industry and just helping it improve. Yeah, they've been the best because they've been able to do that. Absolutely. They found a way. Yeah. But this year, we might see there's a consultation on solvency in the UK at the moment. Yeah, You could argue that we haven't had the revolution that fintech has had in insurtech because no one has been directly authorised by the PRA, meaning they're not their own bank. They're not their own equivalent. And that would be huge. Because with potentially SUK, Solvency UK, it may become known or suck, which is even not so great. Does it suck? I'm not sure, yes, if, if it sucks or not. We'll soon find out. But one of the basic entry-level parts of that might be that the actual threshold for a balance sheet that needs to go through Solvency, that will be Solvency UK, will be about three or four times higher than what it is currently under Solvency 2. So which might be quite a good thing for startup businesses, one would thought. I think it would be. And, and that's half the problem. If you can save 12 months, then you can test something quicker. And if you can test it quicker, it's more useful to everyone. And it's good for the incumbents because they can either act as the reinsurer, the investor, or the person that picks over the bones. So it's useful. The neo banks have been very useful for the big banks because they can use their incumbency to slowly follow in the way you can pick up all the good ideas that they can absorb. There's always a balance. You need competition in life. We need to keep remembering it. Everyone's rejoicing at the moment that Google's finally got Bing as a proper competitor because of chat GPT. But in reality, there probably should be 10 or 20 that can compete with Google legitimately. The digital world is changing competition. Insurance, thankfully, is still a very competitive one, but getting capacity for regulated distribution is not particularly competitive in my view when it comes to doing something different because of the time it takes to convince someone to back the idea. But there's still lots of good eggs out there that do it quicker and do it very well. Yes, certainly there are a lot of people who've set themselves up to be the enablers. Wacam would be a good example, wouldn't they? Yes, that this infrastructure now exists and is openly seeking people to partner with or you know, new insurtechs saying, look, I've got licenses, I can give you a rubber stamp and, and you can be going into market pretty quickly. And you know, let's circle back to what VCs in America, that was a purposeful tongue-in-cheek use of circle back, by the way. VCs in America have always said that they're looking for disruption, something that could kill the incumbent industry. And ultimately, I don't think insurance will be impressed until an actual threat comes along. And I don't think they've been threatened so far by anything in SureTech. They've been complimented, they've been assisted, but they haven't been threatened. And I think we probably need someone to come along that is a bit of a threat, just like Peter Wood was with Direct Lime. Yeah, and it hasn't happened yet. Absolutely, it's certainly what we've seen so far has not been scary. Because can it though? That's the question. Well, I think it's possible, but I haven't seen it yet. That will be a hell of a podcast if we do see it, and then give us a huge amount to talk about. Thanks so much for coming on the show, James. Good luck with everything. Good luck with your iterations and running into brick walls and then jumping over them. It's very impressive to see the way that you're iterating and your enthusiasm is absolutely undiminished, which is great. And the amount of ideas. Well, that's not true. It's diminished slightly in some ways, but <laughs> restocked in others. Thanks very much for coming on the show and book a date at some point in the future to come and see us again. I'd love to. Thanks, Mark. As ever, your lilting tones are good fun. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium, 
where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>